1 Thessalonians 2, one of my favorite passages. I think the older you get, the more favorite passages you get. But uh, this has been, pastorally speaking, perhaps my favorite passage uh, on the philosophy of ministry of the New Testament church. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, uh, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses." And God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. By the way, how many of you would agree that's a great thing to be able to say? You yourselves know how we acted amongst you. What a great testimony. And verse 11, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word of God this morning. Thank you for the church at Thessalonica, for the mighty model that it became. Father, may there be a young man in this room who raises up a church in some state or country that is a model church, a church that has all the biblical characteristics of greatness, a church that is a lighthouse for you. And so, Lord, burn that passion and that desire in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 32 years ago, I drove a Ryder truck into Lancaster, California, and we rented our first two-bedroom apartment uh, downtown Lancaster, not far from our original church building. And as we were writing the bulletin that Saturday night, my wife and I, uh, we were typing it out on a really old, in fact, it was one of the very first uh, Apple computers. We wish now we would have kept it. I'm told it's worth a lot of money. We just chucked it in the garbage can when it didn't work, you know. But we were typing out that first bulletin, and then I was going to run to a print store to run off 30 copies. We wanted to make sure we had a lot of extras. And I wrote in the bulletin these words, Lancaster Baptist Church is an independent, fundamental, separated, non-charismatic Baptist church. I wanted the folks to know because they had been through such tough times, and there was a sign out front that said Antelope Valley Church Center, 
And uh, our church, though we owned the building, was renting or, or staying in a, a little room upstairs and we were renting the main auditorium out to others. And so a lot of people didn't know where we were, what kind of church we were. And, and so we were sort of reasserting our identity in those early days. Uh, I wanted the folks to know that our church was independent. That means that we are not a part of a national denomination. And I'm thankful for that heritage because men like Dr. Sisk and Dr. Rushing and Dr. Lee Robertson and other men like this are men who were once a part of denominations where they had to question whether or not the Bible was the inerrant Word of God. And uh, even recently, this, this same denomination Uh, the Southern Baptists, had to vote on whether or not drinking was right or wrong. They had to make a vote denominationally. By the way, I'm glad we don't have to vote on that around here. And, And many of these men had come out of denominations that were struggling theologically, and so they became independent of those denominations, not because they were mean-spirited or rebel-rousing. Some of them were quite uh, colorful. But fundamentally, the reason that they became independent was they were taking a stand for uh, doctrinal purity. And we believe that's important still today. Also, I wanted our church to know that we were independent because it speaks to the issue of autonomy in the sense that we don't have a denomination that owns these buildings We don't have a denomination that moves the pastor around every so often. Uh, We don't have a denomination that we send money to for our missionaries. Uh, One of the great things, and I've told this to thousands of people, one of the great things about being an independent Baptist is that we support our missionaries directly. Uh, The finances does not go through a denominational headquarters. It goes directly to the missionary. Hence, the missionaries are accountable directly to the local church, not to a denomination. And you'll find local churches in the Bible, but not denominations in the Bible. And so I was explaining this to our people, that we are an independent Baptist church. And sometimes... Uh, people will use derisively the term independent Baptist because of maybe some problems in the history or some famous person that, that fell into sin. Uh, but we must never throw away our, our biblical DNA because a few people have messed up. And I wanted our people to know that we were independent for a reason and then that we were fundamental. And there was another word that, that many times is not used as much today because when you hear the word fundamental, you think of Shiite Muslims with towels around their head trying to shoot you and so forth. And, and even today, I don't go out door knocking and go, hello, I'm Paul Chapel. I'm a fundamentalist. I'm just here to be real fundamental with you today. And uh, I, don't, I don't usually introduce myself that way. I just introduce myself as a, as a person, as a pastor, uh, and, and so forth when I'm out soul winning. Because frankly, to an unsafe person, what does that mean? right? But I wanted our church to know, and I want you to know, that we believe the fundamental truths of the Bible. We believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell, and we believe in the Holy Spirit sealing, and we believe in eternal security. We believe in the the blood atonement, and these are the fundamentals, and we believe that uh, they must never be compromised away. So I was explaining that to the church in the bulletin and through preaching, that Lancaster Baptist Church is an independent church, and we're a fundamental church committed to the Word of God, And then we would sometimes say we're a separated church. And uh, God has called us to a holy life. And the word holy means separated unto and set apart. And so uh, I was teaching this 
young group of people. Mrs. Tierney, who's been our pianist for uh, 32 years, and one of the things we talked about in those early days with some of our workers was separation. If you're going to be up on the platform, we'd like to talk with you about uh, your entertainment being holy and about uh, uh, alcohol consumption. And when I began to talk to her about that and her husband, they, they had wine and alcohol right in their refrigerator at home. And I didn't, I didn't know that, but I was teaching a Bible class about what does it mean to, to live a separated life. And the more we walk in the Spirit, the more we are Christ-like in our living, then there's some things we're going to not do and some other things we're going to do. And we want to have a life that's distinct and separate. And uh, we talked about uh, even issues of modesty for the choir ladies. And I'm telling you, young pastors, those are, those are challenging things to lay those things out. And a lot of young pastors don't even try. They just say, hey, if you come and give money, you can dress however you want, drink whatever you want, cuss all day, do about whatever you want. Just come, give money, and smile, and it's all good. But I determined 32 years ago, I did not want to pastor a church of spectators. I wanted to pastor a church of soldiers, people that had convictions, people that went soul winning, people that loved missionaries, people that came to revival meetings. And so we began to talk about this matter of being a church that that believed in the holiness of God and being a a separated church. And, And then for me back then, and you'll have to figure out where you pastor someday, but when I came to Lancaster and we, we were, our church was, I mean, we were really thriving. We were running like 12, 13. I mean, everybody wanted to come preach here, you know. And the fact is, we were just, we were not even a blip on the radar of Lancaster. But there were some other churches that were really, really large at the time. And one of them still is, and a couple of the others are kind of folded. But they were very charismatic in their doctrine. I mean, these people, some of them actually believe that if you never got the gift of the tongue or tongues or however they said it, that you probably weren't saved. I mean, they, they, were, they believed in uh, the full gospel, as they called it, with signs following, right? And I always, I always got a tickle out of that because uh, when you read in the gospel, there really are several signs that you can find. You find tongues, and they always wanted to talk about that one, but you also find drinking deadly poison and handling deadly snakes. And it's always interesting to me. Nobody ever wanted that gift, right? No one ever well, I know I'm saved. I drank some arsenic, and I'm still here. No one ever tells me that, you know. And uh, now there is a church in Tennessee called the Church of God with signs following, and they literally do try to handle snakes and everything. And, uh, and, and so uh, I, I realized a lot of folks that I was bumping into, they were kind of into this idea that they could lose their salvation because it was more of a Pentecostal belief. Uh, uh, you know, their, their favorite theme song, their favorite uh, hymn, Brother Weaver, is Every Other Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before because it's kind of like not sure, one day sure, one day. How many of you are glad you're saved and you know you're saved? Right? So we were just trying to settle some of our Baptist distinctives, some of our doctrine, the fact that we're not charismatic. By the way, folks, i got to tell you something. Doctrine does matter. Okay? And that's what this college is all about. And, and it's the outflow of this heart that we, we have a DNA And uh, we are Bible believers. We believe the fundamentals of the Word of God. We don't believe the Bible plus the Mormon president or the Catholic Pope or someone's vision that they saw. We believe the Bible is our final authority. That's the DNA of Lancaster Baptist Church and West Coast Baptist College. And and yes, we want to help you understand the origins of these truths scripturally so that you can take your stand in your generation. And so I was preaching along this way and Terry and I moved into our apartment down here on, on Spirit. Avenue and 
And uh, I'll never forget one day, a man came up to me. Now, this is 1986, not 2018. And this fellow came up to me on the porch after I had preached. And man, I'll tell you what, the choir sang, and the choir was good. It was so good. I was choir director. And all we had to sing was the hymn book, because that's all I could afford, you know. And, uh, and, and we had finally at this point a pianist. And so uh, the choir would sing things like Victory in Jesus. And, you know, they, they'd sing, you know, really great choir anthems like at Calvary and stuff like that, you know. And I would lead it. And so I did my best. And, and sometimes we'd have someone try to sing. And, and it, a lot of times it was scary, honestly, the special music. It was scary. But then I'd preach. And, and uh, th- this, this is not the original pulpit, but the top piece here is the original. And some of the inside's original. And I'm telling you, and this one, this is the hardest wood I have I've ever had in the pulpit. But man, it, it's pretty beat up already here. And uh, boy, I just bang that pulpit and preach away and preach about Jesus and people get saved. I remember the day that uh, Brother Leo Walther got saved. I, I, what a special day that was. And I remember Brother John Downey getting saved and so many, so many folks coming to trust Christ. And, uh, and, and this man caught me after church this morning and he said, he said, I need to have a talk to you. He said, you need to understand something. You're never going to build a church in Southern California this way. Just singing like that, preaching like that. He said, you need to get rid of that pulpit. You need to, you need to, just, you need to get a band, get rid of the tie. By the way, I watched last night the State of the Union address. Did you know that not one congressman went to the State of the Union address with holy jeans and a t-shirt? That's just a thought right? And that's what this guy was telling me. You need to loosen up, man. You're never going to build a church in Southern California with preaching like that, he told me. By the way, this idea that you have to change everything that you all hear about now, it's not new. It's, that's not new. And the fact is that that many people believe that. A lot, of, a lot of young independent Baptist guys, they'll get out and go, well, I don't, I'm not running 7,000. I better try doing this and try doing that. Listen, the church is not yours to reinvent. Just, just get in the Word and preach the Word and, and let God bring the increase according to His timetable. And uh, I remember telling that man, and, and I wasn't trying to be you know, proud at all. I just said, sir, I don't know a lot about it. I said, I've only been in this thing about six months as a pastor. But I said, kind of what you're describing to me. I said, right down the street, there's the assembly of God. You might want to try it. Because that's what he was describing to me. And I, I didn't know a lot, but I knew this. God had not called me to build a church that resembled the world. God had called me to just be a plain, plain old Baptist. And you know what? Thank the Lord that some 20,000 souls or so later, the gospel does work after all, even if you wear a tie. And so in those early days, I was trying to just be faithful to what God had given to me. God had given me a heritage. God had given me pastors. God had given me revival meetings. God had given me missions conferences. God had given to me the idea that the pastor should have a distinctive life and and that he's not perfect, but that he should have a good testimony. And God had put into my heart a vision. And, And that is the vision that we bring to you this morning for this generation, that we might be found faithful to the Lord and to the calling that God has upon our life. When I come to the book of 1 Thessalonians, I find that there's a tremendous testimony here. And you'll see even in the Bible contrasting church models. 
You'll never see a greater contrast than, for example, the church of Laodicea with the church of Thessalonica. We read about the church of Laodicea in the early chapters of the Revelation. The Bible speaks to this church, and the Bible tells us a little bit about Laodicea, even with the name Laodicea. You can study it out. Ask Brother Lester, one of the Greek experts. It means the people's rights. That's what Laodicea means, the etymology of that word. It is the church of the people's rights. What do the people want? The church of Laodicea was a community church, if you will. It was the church of the people's rights. It is referred to in chapter 3 and verse 14 as the church of the Laodiceans. All the other churches were referred to as the church at Ephesus, etc. But this was the church of the Laodiceans. So they saw it as their church to have their way, sort of like Burger King, have it your way. It was the church of Laodicea, and they were doing things their way. And by the way, you know the story. They were neither cold nor hot. God had to spew them out of his mouth. Why? Because they were lukewarm. But they were having fun, and they were increased with goods, and uh, they were having a big old time, the church of Laodicea. But then you come to the church of Thessalonica, and Thessalonica is quite different. They were not the church of the Thessalonians. They were the church at Thessalonica, and they knew that they belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a church that was very sensitive to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. About a hundred miles away from Philippi, they were located along what is called the Ignatius Highway. Thessalonica, even in the first century, was a city of around 200,000 people. And as the Apostle Paul preached there, many of those people were coming to trust Christ. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, notice and in verse 3, we read these words, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. He is defining here a people who had a great work of faith, a great labor of love. They were just a church that was on fire for God. And i got to tell you something. Being on fire for God is not about necessarily music. It's not necessarily about program or fun activities. But it's about what are they doing with the Bible? How's the Bible affecting their life? And the church of Thessalonica was a church that God was using in a great way. And I don't know about you, but that interests me. I'm somewhat of a student of churches, and I want to know, well, what happened at that revival meeting? And and what was that prayer meeting like? And and, uh, how how does that pastor uh, organize his sermons? And and what do they do with their missions programs? I I love the church. I love everything about the church. I love love everything about this church. I love every classroom and every church member. And I I know how many buses we have. And and I like to study about the church. And and especially churches that have a biblical model that they're going forward. And God is blessing that church. And I want to show you one that has impacted me this morning. And that is the church at Thessalonica. I want you to notice and take a few notes perhaps. I want you to see first of all that this was a church with pure motives. It was a church with pure motives. Paul is essentially defending the integrity of his ministry at Thessalonica. The the enemies of Paul had somewhat tried to slander him. And so he is rehearsing with them his motives in this ministry. And he says, first of all, in verse 3, that his motives were not deceitful. Notice in verse 3, for our exhortation was not of deceit. Now, there's a lot of deceit in ministry today, and of course, there's a lot of deceit in religion. How many of you know that the world doesn't need more religion? The world needs Christ. 
And there was a lot of religion at Thessalonica. There were the temples of, of Zeus and Apollos. Uh, there were temples that were uh, very wicked in their orientation and very lustful at times as well. And, and, and Paul said, look, it, we did not try to blend in with all of that. We were not just another piece of the ecumenical movement. Uh, we were not trying to be a part of all of that. Uh, he said, we were not deceitful. In other words, uh, Paul said elsewhere to 1 Timothy, uh, thou hast fully known my doctor, my, my doctrine, my manner of life. Everybody knew that this Paul was a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was not deceitful. And secondly, he was not unclean. Notice that in verse 3. For our exhortation was not of deceitful nor of uncleanness. Meaning, Paul was a morally clean man. Gentlemen, there are two ways you'll mess up in the ministry. One, with women. Immorality. And two, with money. I was speaking to a young pastor last week, and their church is preparing to receive some blessings financially. I said, I would recommend you have a financial audit done of your books to make sure everything's in order. And Paul said, we were not in the ministry trying to be deceitful and just blend in with every belief system. And we were not in the ministry in an unclean way. We were not immoral uh, from town to town. It wasn't about using and abusing people. And by the way, uh, that is a tragedy in the Christian realm. And it's also very prevalent today in Hollywood and in the gymnastics world and everywhere else. And it always brings a reproach and a shame. So Paul said we were not unclean. And then notice he says, thirdly, we were not in guile. Notice that in verse 3. Nor in guile. The word guile means to bait or snare, to use trickery or deceit. Now I have a philosophy that if we're going to serve the Lord, let's just get right out with the fact we are a church, we're here to talk to you about Jesus Christ. I have some, some businessmen today that are coming to talk to me about a product which I will not mention right now. And, uh, and they, they're, they're from the city and they want to come and talk to me about something and, and one of them is a friend. And they, I, I, someone else called me a little while ago. They said, hey, this is what the meeting's about. This is what they want to talk to you about. Just want you to know. And so I was like, oh, okay. Because they didn't tell me what they wanted to talk about. And I, so I said, to, I said to this third party, I said, well, I know what I want to talk about. And they said, you do? I said, I do. I want to talk about Jesus. They're going to come to a Baptist church, to the pastor's office, to talk to me about something they want to build in Lancaster, I'm going to talk to them about someone that's building in Lancaster, and his name is Jesus Christ. I just believe in getting right up. I like music. I like Christian music that you can just tell right away, oh, that's about Jesus. Some of this Christian music, you're not sure, are they talking about Jesus or their boyfriend? Oh, he's always there. He's there with me, holding me and holding me and holding me. Oh, and I want to hold you and hold you and hold you too. And you're just kind of going, okay, okay. That's good. I mean, you could sing that on the late night show, I guess. But Oh, hold me, hold me. And after a while, you think, could we say the name? Maybe God somewhere in the third verse? You know, I mean, I don't like deceitfulness. I'm not, I'm not advocating like being in someone's face, you know, like, uh, you got to go to hell right now. I'm not advocating that. But I'm also not advocating being a private eye Christian. He said, we weren't deceitful to you. He just said, I was who I was. I, I wasn't trying to be the community's church. I wasn't trying to be some uh, fill-in guy. I was just being God's representative, God's ambassador there. 
And so oftentimes we see this, uh, this uh, blending in instead of standing out. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.10, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering. Dr. Curtis Hudson was a great influence on my life. He was pastor of the Forest Hills Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia area. And he was later involved in evangelism. He preached here many times. The last time he preached here, the last two times, his body was really affected by cancer. But he preached with such power. And in my office, I have a, a notebook, and sometime if you're up there and you'd like to see it, just ask me or whoever's there. It's just letters from Dr. Hudson. And the last letters that he wrote to me, he wrote from his deathbed. And uh, he, would, he would dictate them, and his daughter Kay would write out what he was saying. And one of the letters he wrote me said, I don't know how much longer I have for this world. The doctor does not hold out much hope for me. However, life and death are in the hands of the Lord, not medical science. I challenge you to take your place in the long line of independent fundamental Baptists who have stood for separation and soul winning. I speak now especially of ecclesiastical separation. Hold the banner high until Jesus comes. Young people, that's what I'm trying to do in my day. Hold the banner high so that no one has to wonder, what do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about Jesus? What about our Baptist heritage? What about our purpose for being here? We're not just trying to be a community club. We're not trying to be an ecumenical type of a church. We're holding true to our convictions and, and standing. And, and sometimes I even think to myself, I know the Lord's watching and I think Dr. Hudson's watching. And If I don't watch it, I might get in trouble. And I'm telling you right now, I want to be faithful to what God has called me to do. Paul said, we're not deceitful. And then I want you to notice, secondly, about their motives. They were not deceitful motives, and they were not man-centered motives. And I want you to see this in verse 4. He says, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, watch this, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Now, now, fellas, let me have your attention here, because this is so elementary. It's so fundamental. When you become a pastor, when you get involved in ministry, all of us think in terms of context, who am I preaching to? That's natural. If I'm preaching on the mission field to people who've hardly ever heard the gospel, it's going to be, I'm going to break the message down so they can understand it. Or if I'm preaching on Sunday night, I might preach a little stronger than I do on Sunday morning because Sunday morning, lots of visitors. You with me so far? Amen. I mean, that's just, that's just wisdom. Every speaker must understand his audience to some extent, in order to communicate to the audience. But here's the danger. The danger is, do I seek to please men or to please God? And many times what we see in church work today is people who are saying, well, no one's going to like that old song, Victory in Jesus. And, and no one's going to want to hear about that Jesus is the only way, or no one's going to want to hear this or that. And, and pretty soon we begin to develop a philosophy around what do men want to hear, and, and there's one thing that I have burning in my heart every time I walk through that door, and this is what it is. I want to please Jesus in this hour. Now, I woke up with that this morning at 4 o'clock this morning. I played the first song I played. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus 
And I want Jesus to be the theme of my life every hour of every day. But I am never more fully conscious of that than when I stand to preach the Word of God. I do not want it to be about what does the people want and what does this community want. I want to be faithful to my calling to exalt Jesus Christ. Okay? And look at what Paul says there in verse 4. Not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Galatians 1 and 10. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should be the servant, uh, I should not be the servant of Christ. You see, uh, it's just that simple. Who are we trying to please? And it's not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men. It's our business to adapt men to Christ. That is, to seek uh, that they might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And many of these churches in their attempt to please men have polluted the doctrine of grace. And they say, well, we're under grace and we can do this and we can do that. But grace does not produce less holiness. Grace does not produce less in the way of godly living. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so Paul the Apostle was not deceitful. He was not man-centered. I want you to notice in verse 5, he was not covetous, just looking at his motives. He was not covetous. The Bible says in verse 5, for neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. And so here we see the motives of the church. Here we see that this man, the apostle Paul, said, now when we came to Thessalonica, we didn't come there deceitfully. We were not there under some pretext other than to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm just saying, when you go to work today, uh, you don't have to stand up on a soapbox. You're there getting paid uh, 10 12 $15 an hour, whatever, to do a job. Do your job. But it's okay uh, to have your Bible at lunchtime or to carry a gospel track or to tell someone, yes, I'm a Christian. Listen, don't ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I wasn't deceitful. If you're a God-called Christian and a God-called preacher, then don't ever be bashful about it. I remember when I was in Bible college, I used to work at Shepherd Machinery. It was Caterpillar Tractor. And I got in there at 3 o'clock. I always worked the swing shift, 3 to 12. Always the same thing. Had school from 7 in the morning to about 12. Then, uh, either when we were dating or when we got married, while I was still in college, my wife and I would find some way to have lunch. And it was usually, after we got married, it was almost every day macaroni and cheese. Every day. And uh, on, on Sundays, we had hot dogs and macaroni and cheese. <laughs> and, but we always, always had lunch. And then we'd, I'd try to study just a little bit, about maybe 45 minutes. I'd try to study for the test or the quiz the next day. And then I had to drive about 45 minutes to work. And I'd go to work, and I worked in a warehouse. And, uh, and I, I noticed that there were going to be men who were, who were going to make fun of me for being a ministerial student. And, and actually, I mean, I'm 19 years old, and I was going, hey, here's the little preacher. <laughs> you know, things like that. And then sometimes, often they'd call me a deacon. I don't know why they call me a deacon. I never have been a deacon, never was a deacon, but there's the deacon. <laughs> I remember one guy in particular, he's an old guy, always had sunflower seeds in his cart. We had these carts. We'd carry these carts around, put parts in it, bring it up to the front. He'd eat those sunflower seeds, you know, and always complaining, always cussing. 
And he always thought he just would kind of rib me for being a young preacher. Oh, there's the young preacher. And he liked to say a lot of cuss words when I came by. And I, I had an early choice at that job. And some of you will have this same choice this week. Either I was going to walk in the Spirit and just kind of smile and go, yep, that's me, your friendly preacher. Or I was going to be kind of embarrassed and kind of, no, no, no. I mean, we've had young people come to West Coast. They don't even tell their coworkers why they're here. You know, Well, why are you here in Lancaster? Oh, just because I like the trees here and there's a lot of them and I just like to, you know, <laughs> study botany. <laughs> I'm just saying, don't be deceitful. Just early on in your life, just get used to saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm actually I'm here studying the Bible at a great Bible college. And, and just, just don't have this persona that, you know, at church it's all good, but at work, you know, you got to work into it. Just be who you are in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm, I wasn't deceitful. And then he said, I wasn't man-centered. It wasn't all about... You know, what, what are the people at Thessalonica going to like? I remember years ago getting something in the mail. And uh, it was an invitation to a seminar on how to build a church in America. And it said, come to our seminar and we will tell you how you can survey your community. And you can do like a demographic study and you can find out what kind of a church they want. And, and if people say that they want a church that doesn't pass an offering plate, then we'll show you how to put a box in the back. Well, if you have to go to a seminar to learn how to put a box in the back, Forget it. But that was one of the things they were going to teach you. And if they don't, if they don't want to hear like a choir, we'll show you how to get a band. And, and, and then they had a picture of a guy preaching like this, like Billy Sunday, and they had a red X, and we'll show you how not to do this and how to just kind of reason with people. And so they said, we'll show you how to survey your community in a marketing, kind of a marketing sense, and then you can put a brochure out and say, if you don't want this, and if you don't want the offering plate, and if you don't want this and such, then come to our church and just come just exactly like you are and just leave the same, and it's all cool, just come to this church. And I, I'm telling you, I was a young pastor, but I looked at that brochure and I thought, now wait a minute, God does not tell me to go to unsafe people and say, what kind of a church do you want? Right? I'm going to go to the book of Acts and say, Lord, what kind of a church do you want? And then I'm going to bring it to the community. It's not going to be a man-centered church. It's going to be a Christ-centered church. He was not deceitful. He was not man-centered. And finally, he was not covetous. Verse 5. Nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Paul said, hey, I didn't go there to get something from you. Can I tell you something? When you have an interview with a church, don't, don't let your first question be, what's the salary? Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for that. Well, I'm just saying that should never be the determining factor in where you go. Paul said, I wasn't in it for what I could get out of it. It wasn't about covetousness. I remember our very first Sunday night here, we uh, preached and and uh, we had just been voted in. It was my first Sunday. I think we had maybe 20, maybe, uh, maybe 10, 10, 12 that night. And the, the one other married couple said, hey, you want to go over to, we used to have a Mexican restaurant called Noggles. 
And uh, I thought, yeah, that'd be great. Number one, I thought, well, they must, they must like us. They want to spend time with us. I mean, that's a really good thing when you're a new pastor that somebody likes you. That's a really good thing. And it's also really good when they want to feed you. That's, that's a really good thing, too. And so I, I did what all big shot pastors do after church. I checked the toilets to make sure they weren't running. And I turned off all the lights and I locked all the doors, made sure everything was locked down. And by the time I got to the car, Mrs. Chapel was there and, and our two older children were in the car. And, and we started heading over to the Noggles. And my, my wife looked at me and I looked at her and I said, um, honey, they're probably already eating. I said, I don't have any money uh, for the food, so if you, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd like to have some some money from you so we can pay for the food. She looked at me and she said, Honey, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have any money. And uh, we had just moved down there and we, 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 had, we had moved our own way with the rider truck, first and last month's rent, had taken a, whatever money we had left to kind of paint some walls that first week and so forth. And, and uh, so, you know, just a little premarital counsel for some of you. When a wife says to a husband, I don't have any money, she still has money. And so I said to her, I said, sweetheart, I know you don't have money, but give me some money. <laughs> and she got big tears in her eyes. She said, not only do I not have money, and not only is there no money in the checkbook, but she said, there's no food for breakfast tomorrow. I'm not really sure how we're going to eat. Well, right then I felt about that big as a man. I mean, it really was like. And uh, we walked into the Noggles restaurant. Sure enough, the family that invited us, they're already over there in the corner table eating. None of this wait for the man of God stuff, you know. I mean, they're just scarfing it down. And so I, I, I had, on the way over, I wish I could tell you that I'm like the next John R. Rice and that I said, let us pray, you know, and we found money in the street. That's not what I did. What I did was I said to my daughter, Danielle, who was five, I said, Danielle, would you check behind the seat and see if you can find any money? And she found 72 cents. And so we walked in, and I said to my wife, I said, okay, look, let's, let's act like we're not hungry. And that's hard to do when you're a Baptist preacher on Sunday night. I said, let's act like we're not hungry, and we'll just get some iced tea, and we'll go sit with the people. And uh, as we walked in, I said, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do here. Just please help me. And we went in. I was going to order some tea. And right when I started to order, the lady behind the counter, she said, excuse me. I just had a van full of teenagers come through and order all these bags of food. And as a joke, they just drove off. She said, I'm going to have to throw it away. Unless you'd like to have it, I'll give it to you. Man, I looked at my wife. We high-fived. I mean, we were just, this is awesome. Man, we ate so good that night. We put some of it away and brought it home in the refrigerator. The next morning, I can't remember the exact time now, 6, 7 o'clock. Someone's banging at our door. I open it up. It's Brother Rick Houck. He was a pastor at that time down near San Diego. He said, Brother Chapo, while I was preaching last night, for some reason the Lord put a burden on my heart for you and your family, and we took an offering to get you some groceries, and Kathy and I drove through the night to bring you these groceries out here in our station wagon. And that's why I hired him. In case you ever wonder. <laughs> Be good to the man of God. <laughs> and you know what we were learning at the very first week of ministry? We take care of God's business. He takes care of our business. Amen. Paul said, when I came to that city, I came with just this simple heart. 
to get the gospel out. It, it wasn't about being deceitful and blending in. And it wasn't about me and some kind of an ego trip. And it wasn't about what I could get out of it. It was about getting the gospel out. Let me just share with you, and we'll finish this chapter next time. Let me share with you this morning. Make sure that your heart this semester stays right with God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Dr. Getch said something so profound Sunday night. He said, if you view the ministry through the lens of yourself, you will always become bitter. Because when it's all about you, you will always get disappointed. Make sure this semester, it's not all about you. Make sure it's all about Him. And you'll have the best semester of your life.